Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kindred. This is Lisa Reagan, and today I'm talking with Kimari Bug, the Chief Empowerment Officer and Change Leader of Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere, ROSE. This is a nonprofit organization created in 2011 to address breastfeeding inequities and disparities in the African-American community. So welcome, thank you for coming. And I, I know we talked about kind of starting with your background and where you were coming from long before you started ROSE. Okay, thank you for having me. Um, I was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana. Um, I know most people didn't know much about that until very recently when the former mayor ran for president, um, but also um, the University of Notre Dame is there. Uh, during the summers growing up, I was allowed to go with my father, who is from Arkansas, to visit his mother. His mother is in Mariana, Arkansas, and she was a lay midwife. And so at the age of 12, my um, paternal grandmother allowed me to help her with um, women coming to her home to labor and deliver their babies. And my task was to um, take the baby and clean the baby up. Uh, and so that's kind of how I fell in love with babies. And also at the time, my grandmother um, expressed to me that she wanted me to be a, what she called real nurse. So that sort of um, started me on a path to nursing. Um, and again, at the same time, my mom in Indiana was um, a LPN, a licensed practical nurse. But that's really how I came to really um, sort of fall in love, especially with babies. Um, and I've been a perinatal nurse um, for the last 40 years or so, um, but also with the work um, and uh, especially labor and delivery and babies. So when did you first decide that there was a need for an organization like Rose? So during some of the first job, the very first job that I had um, was at the, the same year, 1978, I became a mother, um, a wife, and a registered nurse, all in 1978. Um, and what happened during that time is when I had my children, I was living away from my family. And my family, um, everyone that you know had babies were breastfeeding. Um, but they were in Indiana. I went to school in Texas and got married in Texas. And so um, in Texas, I did not know anyone who was breastfeeding. And after I had my babies, I attempted to call La Leche League. And in that time, um, you had phone numbers that indicated where you live. A lot of people don't understand that now. But for example, if your number was 284, you knew exactly where that house was or, or on what street, on what side of the tracks it was. So I never got a call back from La Leche League because I lived on the side of the tracks where people who looked like me lived. 
um, is what my beliefs are. And so I have truly struggled with breastfeeding. So also just graduating from nursing. I had twins too. Let me say that. So okay. you know, and I didn't find out until eleven days before they were born that there were two of them. Um, and so you know, in, in, in 1978, they weren't doing all of those uh, tests to find out you know gender reveals and things. So um, I struggled uh, trying to breastfeed them. And as I mentioned, I was also a nurse, and I had started working on a pediatric inpatient and was sort of uh, toeing the party line when women asked about, you know, helping help with breastfeeding. I was told by who the women, the nurses who were precepting me that we didn't have time for that. You know, we tell them, well, the baby's sick, the child's sick. When you get home, you can continue to breastfeed. So I didn't learn much about breastfeeding or anything in nursing school. I didn't learn anything when I went to the pediatric inpatient in Temple, Texas. I won't name the hospital, but it is currently designated as baby friendly. And I was really happy to, to see that. But um, I didn't get any help with breastfeeding there. And then I couldn't get any assistance in the community. So I decided at that time that I didn't want other women to be as miserable with their breastfeeding journey as I was. So I started to learn about how to help other women with breastfeeding um, on the floors. So very quickly, I became known as the breast nurse um, in most of the professional settings I was. And I moved from Texas at that time in 1979, 1980 to Atlanta, Georgia, and to a hospital here, um, came to a hospital here um, in was also sort of known as the breast nurse because when people had questions with breastfeeding, everybody would sort of turn and look to me. So I just started really reading and, and, and trying to figure things out and it just kind of worked. And so um, from then on, um, on and off pretty much, I've done uh, lots of breastfeeding support for friends, for family, in the hospitals, um, in the special um, care nursery, where I was a nurse for many years, for the state of Georgia, as a perinatal nurse consultant, uh, working in throughout all of the districts, setting up resource mothers and peer counselors, trained all of the peer counselors, uh, WIC peer counselors in Georgia, several in North Carolina, Alabama, South Carolina, Delaware, um, and so have really been doing this work pretty much since then, on and off though, it was more of a passion of actually doing the breastfeeding lactation management work and still being a pediatric nurse practitioner and working um, with sick children as I have also did. But it, it was an extreme passion for many years. Then I was laid off from Emory School of Medicine um, as a nurse practitioner in 2011. And that's when I sort of decided with a couple of colleagues that what we really wanted to do um, was to kind of live out our passion and to truly put together an organization that would address the breastfeeding disparities that we were seeing in the different ethnicities. Because again, the breastfeeding gap of who started and who continued breastfeeding was about 30% and uh, difference in black and white communities. And the gap was not narrowing. 
And so, you know, everyone, many of the people that we saw were breastfeeding. And so we didn't feel those statistics were very correct, but we wanted to see what was going on with those. And so that's why we sort of got together and started ROSE. So over the years, you've also served uh, state and national breastfeeding organizations and have had so this top line view of what's going on. And uh, your work at the United States Breastfeeding Committee, for example, seemed to come during a time when there was a tremendous transition in that organization. What was your vantage point uh, from there showing you that was happening? So um, it, it actually, that it started probably in the early 90s because we got a grant from Health and Human Services to train healthcare professionals in the eight southeastern states. Um, so we were a team of physi a physician, um, myself as a nurse, and a dietitian. And so we were in Kentucky and Tennessee and Alabama. Um, the, both the Carolinas um, and and doing training and meeting other healthcare professionals. At that time, um, we were also realizing that other healthcare professionals also did have not have lactation management training. So a lot of their um, information was coming from a place of we are an expert at doing art lines and doing cut downs and you know taking care of diabetic children and mothers but we don't know anything about breastfeeding and so they were kind of very not helpful at all in trying to help families to breastfeed and so that's a lot of what we learned and what we started to address and that really kind of stayed with me knowing that well if healthcare providers don't know anything about breastfeeding and they're not helpful that will really kind of destroy the whole you know um, initiation and support that families should get if they run into any problems at all and so um, then when we had this opportunity to put this organization together, one of the reasons why it was different than a lot of things that were out there is because we had those connections to physicians, nurses, and dietitians that we had met over the years that were truly in leadership positions in all of these states. And we were able to call on them to say, these are some things we need to do to improve breastfeeding rates, um, uh, duration rates in uh, especially the southeastern states. And so that's some of the things that we got um, together with early on. And one of the ways we were able to do that also was through the United States Breastfeeding Committee, because they were connected to all of the 50 states and you know the uh, DC and the territories. Um, th through funding and directly working with them for resources. And so at that time, um, Rose received a grant from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and one of their um, must-do was to work with the United States Breastfeeding Committee. And so um, I, you know, decided to run for board of director and um, was um, nominated and, and for that position and became uh, the first African-American woman on the board of directors for USBC. 
Um, and at that time, they were going through lots of change, and it was a great time for what it was that we were doing, uh, 2013, right, pretty much at right after getting started, um, but also for the change that they felt that they needed to do. And so we, the, as a board of directors, we really thrashed out policies and 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 procedures and programs and how to restructure the breastfeeding coalitions in all of the states how to restructure um united states breastfeeding committee uh who has uh, a lot of reference power and also authority to work because they work with the federal government the state governments lo local coalitions and so we had the opportunity to really work on a lot of that structure during with those boards of directors, which have led to some phenomenal change. One of the things that we instituted at that time was what we call the crash committee, which was the uh, the, the diversity, the, the equity and inclusion. But we started with those as the soft conversations before we could get to what we're, they're truly doing a phenomenal job at now is truly talking about racism, structural and systemic racism. So we started with the easy conversations with the DEI, and so now they have definitely moved on. So that organization has been really phenomenal and at the forefront of lactation um, support in the landscape in this country. You mean the United States Breastfeeding Committee? Yes. Yes, yes, they have been. Now, uh, what I, I would like to talk about for a moment is, did you witness from your vantage point there um, what I have witnessed in 22 years of being a breastfeeding advocate is there's all kinds of splintering that goes on within what you would think from the outside would be uh, a movement holding hands and everybody is working towards the same goal for advocating for breastfeeding, but then you actually get in there as an activist and you find that um, professionals who tend to be white mostly are very territorial. <laughs> <laughs> about, about their territory. So uh, I have seen over the years trying to bring together uh, professionals and activists and moms and you know different groups in, in, in a cohesive way was very difficult. And it was interesting, I was talking to your son Wesley and your husband George, which I'll tell everyone, um, this is a part of a series for Kindred I should have said that from the beginning. That includes you know, the interview with, uh, with uh, uh, Reaching Our Brothers Everywhere Robe. And you can go and listen to that. It'll be right wherever you found this one. They'll be together on the podcast series. But Wesley, your son was saying they were, they were surprised. They, they were not necessarily welcome into the breast, what, you know, if you consider it some kind of breastfeeding movement going on out there because of the territorial nature of some of professionals in the field who just didn't want a competition, I guess. And I, but I, I, I found that to be remarkable that he noticed that because it, it had been my experience and I just hadn't necessarily brought it up because I felt like that sounded like a Debbie Downer negative thing to say. <laughs> Um, that, that is very true, and um, I guess one of our major strengths is the fact that um, I've just, we have just been unapologetically who and what we are. 
And when we address, um, you know, the, the, the issue, the concern, um, it's always been through our own lens and not um, expecting or even caring, you know, truly um, about how other folks have felt. But then let me do premise this uh, with the fact that um, early on, I talked about the grant that we received with HRSA. In that grant, we were trained by the, the, the mothers of the lactation community. Um, and Dr. Ruth Lawrence, um, Dr. Audrey Naylor, uh, Dr. Miriam Labak. Um, so the, the heavyweights, the folks who wrote the articles, the folks who wrote the books, um, and they were completely and totally the, the wind beneath our wings. Um, and these were older white women um, who were not in for all of that knit that you know fight in fighting and and all of that stuff also, and so um, they also gave us a lot of guidance on directions to go and things that needed to be done. <laughs> And, and how to do it, and also it, uh, were uh, instrumental in getting us into rooms that we would not have been able to get in on our own. So uh, we are truly, truly thankful and grateful for their assistance. But um, with that said, also, um, I, being a nurse even, you know, that's sort of <laughs> the thing in nursing. Nursing Nurses are, my tribe are wonderful and territorial also. And so you kind of come to expect a lot of that sometimes. But yeah, you know, we knew that that was out there. Um, even with, for example, the IBCLC exam, I took the, the exam in 1987. I think the first um, exam was... 1986 and um, I was in IBCLC for five years and there was no return on investment for me and my community and the things that I wanted to do so I didn't retake the exam and you know had no need for it um, however recently I did because we've come to a different point again that was you know five years after 87 and now here we are you know 2015 and a lot of the young black women that i work with are very interested in being ivclcs and so i did retake the exam so that i could help to mentor them um so yeah it's definitely been like that the and that's one of the reasons why i got in, in to um the USBC, because one of the consolations that they have is lactation support providers. And that consolation includes peer counselors all the way through breastfeeding medicine physicians. Um, and my husband was a charter member of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And that, again, was because the those uh, women that I mentioned earlier are the founders of the American of the um, bre uh, bre American breastfeeding um, physicians. And so uh, they also um, got him to be a charter member too. But we've, we've just kind of been where the action was as far as 
you know, working through the lactation landscape and with uh, being there has just made a difference and, and um, continued to help us get into the rooms and the places we needed to do to really push our agenda forward. And that was the other thing. They didn't feel threatened because of the population and the target that was our concern. Um, and, and they weren't had no intention or didn't care at all about working with um, our specific um, target population. Well, I remember in the 2014 conference, the United States Breastfeeding National Conference, it was, it was, I think it was the first time I realized that there was a, a very big focus on building these cultural bridges. And uh, as they said, and we had you know, lots of different uh, um, presenters that were so inspirational and so moving, um, who would come in and say, this is how we built our bridge into our Native American community, our Samoan community. And it has to be someone in that community that understands the language of the community, the needs of the community, what's really happening on the ground that can that you know we can we can train or give resources to, but then there's this other process that has to happen with people who are listening, who need to listen, who are re, who are training this person to go into the community to whatever activist uh, uh, issue they're taking on, but certainly breastfeeding. Uh, there needs to be this reciprocal teaching that's going to happen of, of learning about uh, the racism, oppression, um, inequity, implicit bias, the structure, structural racism, as, as you've talked about. This has not been something that uh, white professionals have been receptive to, but mm -hmm. something happened in the United States breastfeeding <laughs> world, committee world, because the 2014 conference and then the one I just went to last summer. There were two different conferences. It was remarkable. It was just remarkable. It was uh, the energy was, but it was the energy of activists and the anger mm. of activists. And uh, the room was very colorful and diverse. And uh, you know, then again, Robe spoke at the very end of the conference, and I had never, I'd never uh, heard. Um, black men get up and advocate for, for breastfeeding in this way. So that change right there on the ground that it really happened in reality was such a wonderful, uh, miraculous um, event to witness. Uh, and I say that because I've been around for a long time and I can be pretty um, cynical, <laughs> but that was real. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about what was behind the scenes happening that made it possible? Um, there was a lot of crying and stumping and walking out of the room and hugging and more crying. Um, lots of that. <laughs> um, there were times in, in it where, you know, uh, folks truly wanted to walk out. There were times where feelings were um, hurt and toes were stepped on. Um, it was difficult for, you know, the, the oppressor never wants to release power. And, uh, you know, that, uh, and, and especially when you have no idea, you know, that, that you're holding the power, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's the white privilege. 
And so we had to have those conversations. And when you know better, you do better. You know, I talk a lot in my little presentations about Jari's window. I, I know what I know. I know a little bit about what I don't know, and I know nothing about what I don't know. And so if just always been this normalized and you do not um, see in your um, uh, you know, space the, the, you know, anything about slavery and, and Jim Crow and uh, redlining and, you know, uh, about uh, toxic dumps being put in, in neighborhoods and then segregation and, you know, all of those types of things. If you've never had any need to focus on those things, then, um, you know, again, it's like Pollyanna. You just have the, those rose-colored glasses and that's it. But for p women uh, or people of color, we've never had that privilege. And so this was a time where we got people in the room to have those conversations, just basically to help people to understand this is my reality. When I was eight years old, walking in downtown Helena, Arkansas with my grandmother, uh, white men were coming down the sidewalk and we had to get off the sidewalk into the street. Um, and I'm trying to figure out at eight years old, what the hell is going on here? Because again, in Indiana, that's not something that had ever happened to me. And so at that point, you know, after being getting belligerent about it, my grandmother made a vow then never to take me downtown in West Helena, Arkansas again, um, because um, I didn't understand what was happening and she didn't know what would happen to me. So again, it's about making, putting it out there and seeing who is willing to listen and at least hear it and then start to make some small um, inroads into why and how um, this has happened like this. And then what is it we can do to um, change? One of the speakers that we had come and present to us early on was Dr. Joy DeGruy. Um, are you familiar with her? She um, does this phenomenal presentation on um, post-traumatic slave syndrome. That oh. is amazing. And so her, you know, speakers like that and Dr. Kamara Jones, um, who um, does, again, another presentation on um, uh, health equity and, and, you know, achieving health equity and talking about, again, the different types of racism. And uh, Dr. David Williams, who's at Harvard and has done some phenomenal economic presentations on the differences in um, the wealth gap and African-Americans and, and white people. Because again, my dad, when he came home from the war, was not able to get a GI loan because he was black. Um, and so a lot of people don't even understand that. So again, until you kind of understand or uh, uh, are presented with the, the realities, um, then you, know, you, can, you aren't really expected to um, be willing to make these changes. And then, you know, some people after being uh, addressed these concerns were not able to make those changes, but a majority of the folks were. And so that's why it took several years, but it has, they have truly made a phenomenal transition. 
So there's a very large body of uh, science and research into how nonprofits have been bastions of white privilege minimally and white supremacy outright in some cases because of uh, the boards being white and moneyed and just you know staying like you said they don't release power they hang on to it um, and don't uh, make efforts to expand and change. Uh, invite board members outside of their circle. So that this, again, process was uh, implemented and it looks like it's trickling down now into different organizations that are, I see the, I should tell the, our listeners, the United States Breastfeeding Committee, usbreastfeeding.org website is fantastic with the um, materials up there anyone can take and use. Uh, uh, so, could you give us like a little mini course here, just a, a little mini course of what is it you're saying and presenting to um, professionals? The, the bottom line is to, to help folks to understand there's a lot of things that were not true that we learned growing up. Um, and that our implicit bias um, leads us to believe in a lot of stereotypes, again, that are not true. Um, and so we need to look at um, what it is that, you know, we should do, especially as professionals, and be sure to make sure that we are helping the families that we serve reach, you know, health equity. And, you know, that's all it's about, you know, that uh, us, um, you know, I can't really talk about the love of Christ like I would like to uh, in, in spots like that. So what I have to just talk about is the fact that we are um, called in our professions to serve. And in order to do that, we have to look at our own biases and get those out of the way. Um, you know, one example is how culturally inappropriate it uh, was for so many years as a nurse in postpartum areas, most of us would line up um, uh, the ice um, buckets and take them to the mother's rooms when we were serving different populations of women and that it is insulting to Asian women to give them a bucket full of ice and water right after they have a baby that is culturally inappropriate because they only drink hot stuff and hot foods because of their culture. And we would go in there and sit those pitchers of ice water in there and, you know, and, and that offended them. And so it is imperative that we learn um, definitely what is offensive. And, you know, now it's not about us changing who we are. It's just about while we are with certain um, groups and people and organizations that we sort of um, act appropriately. Um, and so in the African-American community, for us, it's all about relationships. And what we find a lot of times in the hospitals is they will say things like, well, we have these breastfeeding support groups for the NICU mothers, and none of the Black mothers ever come. And so I say, okay, well, tell me about how you advertise or how you invite them. Well, here at the clerk's desk, there's a flyer. There's a you know piece of paper on the wall that says, 
you know, a breastfeeding support group at 10 o'clock every Tuesday morning. And so to help them to understand that that is offensive and not acceptable to Black women is something that, you know, is easy for us to do. Our community is all about building trust in relationships because in this country for so many years, we didn't have that. And so in order for me to want to participate in something like that, you'd have to come to me and ask, um, you know, hey, you know, Mrs. Um, Jones, the mother of this 28-weeker, there is a breastfeeding support group um, that we would love for you to come to. Um, and this is the time and these are the dates. Then you have a much better time or, or, or um, you know, it's more possible for you to get that woman to come and to participate. And again, uh, so many different little things like that can make a difference in how the staff tells us all the time, how do you engage these women? And I'm doing my air quotes because that's code for, you know, um, women of color, African-American women, Hispanic uh, women. When they say these women, you know, you know who they're talking about. So again, working on those codes, working on their biases, helping them to understand how to, and, and that's one of the things that we've done a lot in our organization. Um, we bring the equity to projects and programs and help folks to really um, engage the com their target populations. Because a lot of times, again, these are folks with grants and programs and projects that they need to infuse into the communities that they know absolutely nothing about. And so, um, you know, part of what we want, of course, is for breastfeeding rates in initiation to be increased. So if they are legitimate, uh, we are definitely willing to help to facilitate um, a lot of that. So um, it's just, you know, an ongoing thing to help folks to learn about cultural humility. Um, as Dr. W what Dr. Um, um, Murray, Jane Murray talks about, uh, that you'll never be culturally competent uh, in someone else's culture. However, you can um, continue to learn. It's a lifelong process. And as you do, at least um, have the cultural humility to ask, how is it that I can um, serve you um, and, and, and make sure that you reach your specific um, breastfeeding initiation and breastfeeding duration goals? Because, you know, what the CDC has shown is that 60% of women who start breastfeeding don't meet their goals. And um, I'm willing to say it's higher than that in the African-American community for many reasons, many barriers, many challenges. But that's a really sad commentary that 60% of women are not meeting their goals. Yes, it is. And, and they do set the goals in the beginning. We know that. that and it's just all the hurdles in between. Absolutely. And one of the biggest hurdles had been getting out of the hospital successfully breastfeeding. Now, um, with the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative being um, funded by the CDC, um, the number of baby-friendly hospitals has about 
tripled since, you know, probably about 2011, right when we were starting, because that was the first initiative that took 90 hospitals through the baby friendly process. And now several other um, things have happened with that too. So now um, there are they said over a million babies who, that have been born in baby-friendly hospitals, and there are like 600-plus baby-friendly hospitals where in about 2010, um, only probably, it, it was in a single digits, um, number of babies in this country were actually born in baby-friendly hospitals. Now it is tremendously more. And, you know, like I said, over a million babies have been born and there are 600 plus baby-friendly hospitals. Right. So I want to talk a little bit, you, you're talking about relationships and how important uh, relationships are in the African-American community. And I want our listeners to know there's a Jenny Joseph interview on Kindred that you can go um, listen to. But the first time I listened to Jenny Joseph, who was a, a British midwife who came to the United States and set up practice in Florida, I, I kept hearing about her fantastic results with her um, patients and, and how uh, you know, their rates of morbidity, maternal morbidity were so low compared to national rates. And so I'm listening to Jenny Joseph speak years ago on this call. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the big secret, the big secret, because what I don't realize is my brain is in uh, <laughs> uh, white privilege, academic thinking mode. I'm waiting for the, you know, waiting for there to be some kind of something more complicated. And then when she says it's relationship we found the people are coming through her door and they're seen and they're heard and it, they're, uh, it's understood that they may have taken three buses to get there and it's understood what they have to face to have a healthy baby and the, the relationship that is built is what makes the difference in the maternal morbidity rates in her clinic and it was just humbling but it was also uh, frustrating because I'm thinking, how are you going to do that? How are you going to reproduce that? <laughs> I know she's out there trying to teach people now <laughs> how is this reproduced, but this is more than just a cultural shift. This is an internal human heart shift. Maybe. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, she's definitely one of my favorite people. Um, and she does it with ease because that's the spirit that she has. But as I, I teach all the time, it's about being transparency. It's about owning um, your thoughts, your concerns. It's about creating safe spaces. And now what I've been talking about more, we at Rose, is we don't want to just create safe spaces because we've been there for years now. And, I, we, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. says, we have the, the, the fierce um, sense of urgent, the urgency of now. And so we've got to push this envelope and we want to have brave spaces. We want to have a, a, a room where we can get to um, and, and have different people who can talk and actually ask the questions 
that they need to ask, their burning questions, and to be able to come out of it feeling good that there are no stupid questions. You know, for example, um, you know, I, we, we, we've been working on these spaces quite a bit to have these brave spaces. And one of the things that comes up often is, well, you know, why is it that Black women get offended when I say, can I touch your hair? And that happens a lot in the African-American community. Did you know that? That women come up to y'all all the time and say, can I touch your hair? And that is extremely offensive for Black women. And so, but it's, that's good. That, no, that means that you have noticed that that is offensive and you're asking why. So those are the types of, of things we want to do is to, you know, that safe space is something that needs to continue to happen, but we need to have bold spaces now where I can, or brave spaces, where I can truly bring out, you know, the fact that, yeah, you know, in our family, you know, there are still these things that are going on, but I want to do better, so I want to know about this in, in, in the African-American community. You know, tell me, you know, somebody asked me once, is it true that Black people um, do the electric slide at funerals and at weddings? And, you know, I had to laugh about it, but it's just like, yes. And they said, well, that was just been a burning question on my heart, and I didn't know who to ask. And it was just funny. It was like, you know, it's funny for them. It was funny to me, but it's tr it was true. And so, you know, those are the kinds of spaces that we need to have to be able to share so that we know. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you really quick. We're in the middle of quarantining for the COVID-19. And uh, you were saying that this moment is highlighting the issue of uh, a Black maternal mor mortality uh, because of uh, what is happening? How is that uh, going? So some of the stuff that is happening right now um, is that in places where, uh, and and again, this may be because this uh, they these are the people that I work with a lot who are contacting me, but in uh, many places in this country where black and brown women are delivering their babies, the hospitals are deciding to separate mothers and babies just randomly if if because of COVID-19 they're saying that when women have babies we're going to separate them put the babies in the nursery put the mother in a room um, by herself so that the babies I, I don't know don't get COVID-19 until the mother has been tested you know those tests have been five days long so the problem that we see and again this is because of the people who are calling me, and I've had calls from six states, um, is that it's happening in areas of town where the majority of the women who are delivering at those hospitals are black and brown women. And so, um, you know, some of the things that we've asked very recently is that, uh, this week <laughs> specifically, that, um, USBC and also Moms Rising um, address this. Um, there's also been some guidelines that have come down from the CDC that just this week also that addresses this. The American Medical Association um, is also addressing it. But these are all folks that, you know, um, advocates have been calling all week 
um, ACOG has put out a statement just yesterday, and there's an article in the New York Times about this also. But this is what I've been working on for the last six days, and lots of other people also, um, because again, of the so many calls and. Also, uh, women have been going in to labor and deliver alone because the hospitals are saying that they cannot have a support person with them. Um, but I'm being told that that was happening a lot in New York and that Governor Cuomo addressed that yesterday and said that it would not happen anymore with labor and birth. Um, but that is happening uh, again in many inner city hospitals um, where women are delivering alone. Um, and, you know, that is extremely traumatic. <laughs> birth has already been pretty traumatic um, in this country for Black women because, you know, maternal mortality, um, especially here where I am in Georgia, is higher th here than it is anywhere else. Um, so birth is already traumatic. And for them to be alone, um, of course, is just really a lot worse. Okay, and let me just follow up on that for our listeners and say that La Leche League and a number of other breastfeeding organizations have also advocated that you continue to breastfeed your infant um, during this COVID-19 virus because uh, it's more traumatizing for the child to not be held and, and nursed and to miss out on that. And those are all up on Kindred um, if you want to take a look there, kindredmedia.org. Um, okay, so uh, I, I'm going to try to be careful with our time, but I did want to talk about that safe space. Let's go back to that safe space because I also witnessed something else remarkable and you were there um, this past August in San Francisco. You and I attended the Center for Work-Life Law um, Breastfeeding Summit and uh, this is a part of the um, University of California at Hastings um, uh, and they, this event was specifically about work-life law, of course, but really about languaging and how to use different languages in different states, depending upon whether they're Republican or Democratic or you know, super conservative or somewhere in the middle. There is a certain way to speak to people, supposedly, we learned, in order to get them to care about breastfeeding and supporting breastfeeding. <laughs> Uh, uh, this is a sophisticated, these are sophisticated activist tools that both um, were exciting to find, but also made me despair a little. <laughs> so I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what you thought about that uh, summit, but then I, I, I know you know what a moment I want to talk about because there was another moment that we, um, we had uh, that stopped the, the conference and we, we went into more of a human place with each other. But what, what, were you, what were your thoughts about that, how we have to be careful with our language in order to advocate for breastfeeding, depending upon geographically where we are? Yeah, I think that that is something that we had to do in the past. Um, it has changed dramatically, but I would definitely say that geography matters. Um, the way that you talk about it in California, where breastfeeding rates are 95%, are very different than how you can talk about it in Mississippi and Louisiana that has the lowest rates in the country. Um, but 
Um, it, it's gotten a lot better in the last five years because the, the federal government has been very involved, Office of Women's Health and HRSA. Um, in developing language and, and resources. And also because uh, so many um, uh, articles and information have been coming out of just about every area also. Right. And it is different. You and I are both in the South. And I, so here's the moment I want to talk to you before I let you go, uh, because I witnessed this in a in a way that was for me uh, remarkable. I did feel like a, a sacred witness at this moment. And, and I guess you, you just have to be a Southerner to, to appreciate this. But there was a moment in a conference, um, and again, this is a very well put together, very uh, you know, intellectually driven conference. And uh, something happened and the room shifted and someone in the back raised their hand and said, I, I, don't, I don't remember who it was, but they said, I, I'm not feeling safe, and I think we should go around the room now and ask the women of color if they feel safe. And everyone checked in on their level of feeling safe. And to me, that was remarkable. I tried to speak, I tried to contribute, but I, I couldn't get my voice, so I was choking up. And it, it, I felt like that moment brought our humanity into the room because we all did the pausing and listening practice that wasn't necessarily on the agenda, but it really did bring the heart um, into the room to have that level of consideration for where are people right now. Do you remember that moment and what were, what were your thoughts? I do, um, and I definitely think that it was wonderful. What happened was that it was time to move on when we were talking about some things that were really felt deeply, um, particularly about from, you know, they felt um, by women of color. And so the agenda, what was on the agenda said, move forward. Um, but then again, as you mentioned, someone in the room said, but, we're not really feeling easy and good with where we are with um, this last um, agenda item. So it, it, it felt good to be able to sort of jump out of the ivory tower and to recognize that everybody truly had feelings and concerns and um, there was not any, uh, we were going to move on without at least addressing those or at least letting someone um, say something. And as you mentioned, there were some tears in the room um, because again, some people, uh, and then they specifically asked some people, um, you know, what do you have to say? Because they felt there was some serious emotion in their faces. Um, it was a great time, it, it, it was good. It would be fabulous for more meetings to be like that. Um, again, when people are able to come to, to get in touch with um, how they're feeling in order to affect policy that's going to impact so many other other people, this gets extremely painful 
for many of us. I've, I've, you know, held many um, African-American women in my arms who have lost babies to sudden infant death syndrome and, you know, um, uh, grandmothers who've lost their daughters um, when they were having babies in childbirth. And, and, you know, that takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on you to be the mother of a Black son in America. Um, just always concerned about are they going to make it home safe um, for many reasons. Uh, so uh, it really felt good for that organization to, to allow that space so that we could, um, everyone could sort of go around and, and, and check in just for a few minutes. And everybody needs to do that. We need to add, um, put time into these agendas, and especially at times like this with this COVID-19, where we can truly say to people, um, how are you really feeling? Um, there was a woman that I met many years ago, her name is uh, Bob, um, Bobby Avery. And she said to me one day, she held my hand and said, how you doing? And I said, I'm doing fine, yada, yada, yada. And she held my hands and she looked in my eyes and she said, now, how are you really doing? And I just started to bawl. I just cried and I cried. And I'm like, well, I had to run home and put on these high heels and the skirt because I was at work and I really wasn't finished. And this is happening with my kids, and, but I know I needed to be here. And I mean, someone, and that was my first meeting, but she made me feel so safe that I just, I just had to come out to her. And so I have done that over and over and over again, because she made me feel so good. And like, you know, Maya Angela said, you, you don't remember what people say, you don't remember what they do, but you remember how they made you feel. So I want to be sure to make people feel like that too. And so that's why I always attempt to take time to truly listen to people and to look at them and to give them some space to be able to talk. And we need to do that these days because there are so many hurting people at home right now. Mm. So what else would you like for our listeners to know about your work before we go? Well, just that we are really grateful to be able to do this work. We have had um, some phenomenal partners, um, the uh, Health Connect One and Moms Rising and 1000 Days and um, especially, of course, United States Breastfeeding Committee and NAPLSI. Um, also NACHO. So there are so many wonderful people uh, or organizations and people in this country who are, are, are doing um, the, the work in the communities. And we're really thankful because that's, you know, where we have to go to address um, issues and barriers and challenges. Um, it's truly, we have to have connections to the community. And so I'm really thankful to be able to do that. Well, thank you so much for coming on, for sharing your story, for the work that you're doing. I, I am just blown away that you have been almost a lifelong activist, it seems. <laughs> 40 years, <laughs> right? Um, so thank you so much. And I'll let our listeners know that you can go to breastfeedingrose.org for Rose and breastfeedingrobe.org for the Reaching Our Brothers Everywhere. Uh, which is um, also an organization that was created by Rose. So 
So thank you so much again for coming on today. I appreciate your time and all you're doing. And thank you so much for having me. All right, thank you. Bye-bye.